a few Bibles. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity and the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, they gave themselves over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. We're also going to... The next Bible reading comes from Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24. It's on page 1013 of most few Bibles. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is a lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's turn to God in prayer. Each time we hear God's word read and taught, it is... In fact, God speaking to us, and as spiritual as you can get, God speaking to us. So let's turn to God in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word here in Matthew, and these are hard words for us to hear, but we pray, Heavenly Father, that you might soften our hearts to hear you and to be willing to be changed by your word and by the working of your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, it's 3 a.m. in the middle of the night. 
You're sleeping, you're sound asleep, deep in your sleep, and you suddenly hear the fire alarm. It's off, the house is on fire, you have to run out of the home. What will you get? What will you grab on your way out of the home? It's on fire, you don't have any time for tea or coffee, you have to run out. So why don't you turn to the person next to you, I'll give you about 20 seconds, ask the person next to you, what will you grab on your way out out of the home? Okay, well, I'll call you back. Well, let's uh, hear some of these answers. So who's willing to share what the person next to them said? Oh, Margaret. Bible and photographs. Okay, great. And Ken first. We did hear that. <laughs> Tanya? You'll grab... Yes, he'll grab you. Good. <laughs> Okay, anyone else? What was that? Cricket bat. Cricket bat. Just in case it burns down, the wood. Okay, Mary. The hard drive. Now, do we all understand what a hard drive is? Okay, it's not a car that drives hard. Okay, anyone else? Your homework. A dedicated student there. Okay, we'll have one more. Lindell. Your husband and your dog. Okay. I'm actually quite glad that some of you mentioned those you love. So that's good. I I didn't hear anyone grabbing their kids. Okay, I hope kids are included there. Okay, good. All right. Well, you see, a question like that is quite tough, isn't it? Because in life, we treasure so many things. We have so many possessions and we enjoy them. And so a question like that is actually quite hard. What do I actually treasure most? What would I grab? What do I love most? But I'm sure you would agree with me that whatever it is that we treasure amongst all our possessions, whatever it is, no matter how precious that thing is to us, none of those things actually last. See, the new iPhone, that will be superseded in 12 months' time. The latest Android phone. There's probably one coming out every week. The, the new car that you get, well, they will start looking quite dated after not so long. So as precious as all the things we own and possess in life, we actually know, and you know, that they don't actually last. And we all know this, don't we? But yet, the strange thing is, we spend our life focused on these things. We spend our, the whole of our life Focus on getting stuff, getting things, accumulating possessions. So as a student, I'm looking for saving up for that latest gadget, for that latest dress. I'm not talking about myself here, the latest fashion thing. As a worker, I'm I'm saving for, I'm working towards that great holiday, that luxury holiday. I'm saving for that computer. I'm saving for that car. I'm saving for that house. And then when I get that, I actually want more. 
I'm not satisfied. I want more than that. I want to get the bigger house, the, the great Australian dream to have my own home that I not really own, the bank owns it, but I live in it. That great Australian dream to have my own castle, my own domain. And when I get all that, I actually still want more. I want more and I want more. But surely this is not what life is about. And I'm sure you would agree with me, even if you're sitting here, not a believer, not a Christian, you would agree with me that life does not consist of accumulating wealth. It does not consist of accumulating riches, accumulating stuff, possessions. There must be more to life than those things. So what is it in life that you really treasure? What is it in life that that you dream about, that your heart longs for, that sets your heart pumping? What is it that you're living for? Well, you see, in our passage today, Jesus addresses just that. In our passage today, Jesus acts like this great doctor, this great physician. He checks our heart. He checks our eyes. And then from our heart and from our eyes, he reveals to us who it is that we're serving, who our master is. So let's have a look. Let's look at uh, the first diagnosis, the first checkup, the heart. Where is your heart? Where does your heart lie? What have you set your heart on? What are the things you trust in? Well, what Jesus teaches us here actually just makes perfect sense. You don't have to be a Christian to agree with this. If you are going to store up treasures, you're not going to store up lollies like Hayden, right? You're going to store up things that will last. Anything that's valuable, they're things that will last. The, the longer they last, the, in a sense, the more important they are. And so out of the rice cooker and the coffee machine, I'm going to take the coffee machine. If you, if you heard last week, I'm not a fan of rice. Out of my, uh, between my rice, uh, sorry, my coffee machine and my iPhone, I'll probably still take my coffee machine. Out of my family and my coffee machine, shouldn't be any surprise. I hope you're not doubting that. I'll take my family. Okay? But, but you see, all these things that we possess, all these things that we have, they can actually be lost in the fire. They can be burnt down as important, as precious, as valuable as these things are. They can be all lost. And so Jesus is saying in this passage, there are things that are far more important, way more important than all those things. Everything you own in your home, there are things more important than that. Now, just this past week at one of my Bible studies, a lady who very recently became a Christian, a new Christian, this is, she had this clarity to life, this new perspective she got to life and eternity after becoming a Christian. It was just brilliant to hear. In our studies, we were talking about the worries of life, all the worries we have. We worry about so many things, stress about so many things. And she says, why do we worry about so many things? Why do we worry about our homes? And she goes on to say, you know, you dream about the apartment and you get the apartment and then you want the townhouse. And then you get the townhouse and then you dream about the home, you get it, and then you go to the home. And once you get the home, you want the bigger home. And then once you get the big home, you want one in a better location. It actually never ends. And then she goes on to say, in the end, we're all left with a little two-meter square hole in the ground. That's all we get. As big as our mansions are in this life, we all end up in the same place. Two-meter square 
whole six feet down. Those are wise words, aren't they? A new Christian, her perspective, her clarity to life is brilliant. And so if we, if you invest your heart, if you place your trust in the things that are in this world, then you know what? You know what type of investment that is? What you call that type of investment? It's called a bad investment. It's a very bad investment because that investment will return with you a big fat zero because you'll lose all those investments. It's actually the worst deal ever, worse than the Telstra shares. It's like putting all your... Some of you might know about that, but anyway, it's like putting all your eggs in a basket, all of them in one basket, but it's a dodgy basket. It's one that's made in China. It's got a big hole in it, and you lose all your eggs. And so that's silly, right? To invest all your things in the things of this world is actually a bad investment. So no matter what you end up possessing by the time you retire, because by the time you die, we end up in the same place, in a hole six feet down, decaying because death has taken us. Death, you see, does not discriminate. The worms in the ground, they do not discriminate. They'll eat us and eat us and eat us. So Jesus is showing us here the stupidity, the foolishness of living for things that do not last, that will not last. Have a look at your Bibles, chapter 6, verse 19. So follow through with me, verse 19. It says here, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. You see, back in Jesus' days, they were worried about moth and rust and thieves. But today, we're thinking, you know, we Christians, modern people, we're thinking, we've got mothballs that will deal with the moth. We, we galvanise our steel, so that will deal with all the rust. And we've got content insurance that will, you know, we don't care about the thieves anymore. But you know what we've got to worry about today? We've got to worry about things like tsunamis and typhoons and earthquakes and bushfires and terrorism. You see, when any of that get to us, get to our homes, all will be lost, all will be gone. And so Jesus is saying, it's foolish, it's stupid to live for things that will not last. Instead, what does he teach? Look at verse 20. He says, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. Now, if you think about it, that makes sense. Those are the good treasures. Those are the real treasures because they last. And they last and they last for all eternity. They go beyond the grave. None of the stuff in our homes, they, they, none of them go with us. But these things, these treasures in heaven go beyond the grave. Treasures in heaven. But now we must ask, what are these treasures? What's Jesus talking about here? Heavenly treasures. Well, firstly, let me tell you what it is not saying. It is not saying that in heaven your treasure is that mega mansion closer to the throne of God because you've been a good person. You are the ones who get the angels to be your gardeners, whereas us normal Christians, we're in the suburbs of heaven, we still have to mow our own lawns. That's not the treasure. That's not the reward. And it's also not this. It's not in heaven. You'll be walking around with a bigger head. You know, some of you good Christians who have brought so many to faith, your head will be huge. 
Whereas the rest of us, you know, we'll just look normal like this. That's not the reward. That's not the treasure. Rather, heavenly treasures are things that are beyond our understanding, beyond our expectations. Now, this is what Don Carson, the great theologian, says. He says, We will enjoy in heaven love undiluted, a way of life utterly sinless, integrity untarnished, work and responsibility without fatigue, deep emotions without tears. Now, I'm happy with that one. Worship without restraint or disharmony or sham. And best of all, the presence of God in an unqualified and unrestricted and personal way. Such treasures cannot be assailed by corrosion or faith. You see, the treasure in heaven is, in a sense, God himself. It is Christ himself. And being in the presence of the Almighty, what treasure that is. But you see, that is not all. That's not our only treasure. Because if you, if you think about this in the way Paul teaches, I'll show you in a moment, as we Christians share with those around us the news of Jesus, we sow the seed of the gospel. And when people respond to the gospel and they come to faith, they, in a sense, become our treasure when we see them in heaven. Now, this is what Paul meant when he says in 1 Thessalonians, he says, For what is our hope? our joy or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes. Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. The treasures that last in heaven are those you bring to faith. Now when you, and hopefully under God, you will experience bringing people to faith in Christ as God uses us weak vessels, weaklings, to bring this salvation to those who are lost in darkness to light. As God uses you, uses us, and they become a Christian. They, in a sense, become your treasure. And, and, and in, in my uh, short life so far, there's not many things in life that actually brings greater joy than to see someone who is dead in their sins come to understand grace. And they're, in a sense, just raised from there, just there because now they belong in heaven. And I say this to my growth group on, on Thursday. I said, how wonderful is that, that treasure, that though we are brothers and sisters now, our relationship is this way. We'll see each other for years as we come to the same church and live around the same era. It might not always be the case. We'll pass away. But one day in heaven, there will be a reunion. How great is that? That is the treasure of heaven and what treasures they are. Now, how do you actually work out where your heart is? Are they the things you treasure? Well, Jesus tells us. Look at verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Whatever it is you treasure, whatever it is that you place your trust in, that's where you find your heart. The things you desire, the things you long for, the things you dream of, that's where you find your heart. And so if the things I dream of, worry about, stress about, that keeps me awake, that I pursue with all my might in this life, the things that I count as precious, that I must have, well, whatever that is, that is where I find my heart. And that could be anything. 
We're talking about money tonight, but it's not just money. It could be my studies. That's the priority in my life. I must, must, that's all my energy into that while my heart is misplaced. That could be my relationships. I give it all to my relationship and that's the only thing that counts. Nothing else. While my heart has been misplaced. It could be the car that we save years and years for and then we drive around and it gets keyed. My heart has been misplaced. It could be the lifestyle. It could be the home. My heart has been misplaced. And if you do end up getting that treasure anyway, just think about it. Whatever it is you desire, you want, just say you get it. Well, in the eyes of the world, you might might look like you have won. You know, you're the winners at the game of life. You got what you wanted. But you know what? In the eyes of God, you're actually the fool if that's all you have. Because remember, at the end, we all get the same little plot of land in the ground, six feet down, two metres square. And so if that is your treasure, and they are the only things you work towards, Jesus says, you're a fool. You're a fool. But the things, if I, the things if I dream about, strive towards, work towards, pursue with all my might, are the things of heaven, the things of God, the things of the kingdom of heaven, the salvation of souls, then those are the treasures that last. The great reunion in heaven, I can't wait for that. The great reunion where we'll see each other for all eternity. And if that is where my heart is, that's where my heart is. And so where is your heart? Where is your trust? So that's the first diagnosis. Jesus does another one. What about your eyes? How are your eyes? Do you see clearly? Because you see, the way you see things determines how you live. The way you see determines and shows what you're like. And so what Jesus talks about next is this. Look at verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. Now, what did Jesus mean by that? You see, what Jesus was saying is that our eyes work by directing our bodies, directing our actions. When we see, we know where to go, we know what to do. Our eyes actually help us navigate through life. And so the good eye is the eye that sees clearly, that knows where he or her, she he, is going. Now, the word good here, the good eye, carries two meanings. The first meaning is this. The word good also means sort of single, single-minded. To have the good eye is to have the single, undivided devotion to God, to the service of God. My eyes is centered on that, focus on that, and only that. The good eye is the single-minded mind, minded eye, focus on the things of heaven. But yet the, good, uh, the word good also ha- has a second meaning. It also means to be generous. So to have the good eye is to have the generous eye, to have the proper perspective on the things of this earth, to know that none of these things will last. And so if I actually have that perspective and know that none of these things in this life will last, I can be generous with that, and I should be generous with that. Now a missionary and a martyr, Jim Elliot, he says this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Do you get that? Very wise words. These things, we can't keep them anyway. Why not give them away? Why not be generous with them 
and we will gain the things we cannot lose. And so I want you to think about this today. Would you call yourself, I want you to search your heart, would you call yourself a generous person? Would people see you as a generous person? Now for Christians anyway, many people think that if you give, if you tithe, if you give 10% of whatever you get, you're generous. Now for many people that would be generous because they don't have much, so 10% is a big amount. But you see, in the New Testament, 10% is never given as a standard. It's not the standard of generosity in the New Testament. You see, in the New Testament, the standard of generosity is the cross of Christ. You want to see what generosity looks like? You look to the cross of Christ. Just consider how generous Jesus was. And just imagine, what would happen if Jesus only tithed his blood and he gave 10% of his blood? Or imagine what would happen if Jesus was only 10% dead. Well, we will not be saved. We will not exist. You see, the standard of generosity that I want us Christians to remember is the cross. The cross of Christ. And so it begs the question, are you generous? Are you generous? Does it actually cost you? in your generosity? Does your generosity cost you things in this world? Now, when a non-Christian looks at your budget and looks at how you spend your money and what you use it on, would they be thinking, there's nothing surprising with that? That's how I would use my money? Or would they actually be shocked, so shocked, because you give so much away? I want you to think about that. Would they be shocked because you're so generous and just so unworldly? And if it's not the case then you need to ask why. I asked why this past week. I considered how much we're giving away. If a non-Christian saw what I was doing with my money, would they be shocked? We need to ask why are we not so generous? You see, it's perhaps because we think of generosity in terms of uh, something that we can give away without having any cost to us. But the standard of generosity in the New Testament is the cross, and it costs to be generous costs. And so does my generous generosity actually cost my lifestyle? I want you to think about that. Does it actually cost your lifestyle? Does it mean that I have to spend less on the things I love? Am I always looking for ways to be generous? Now, last week we saw and we heard about CIMAID and that organisation. Are we thinking about ways to be generous when we hear things like that? If I claim to be a Christian, if you claim to be a Christian then there must be a cross-shaped cost to your generosity. And so what does it mean to have the good eye? The good eyes was to have the single focus on serving God, undivided devotion to God, and it's to have the eye that is generous. And if that is my eye, if that is your eye, then our body will be full of light, full of life. Now, what about the bad eye? What is that like? Look at verse 23 now. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? You see, if my eyes are bad, it means the opposite to the good eye. It means that I have divided loyalties. It means that my eyes are greedy. They're lustful. They're covetous. You see, our eyes are sort of the beginning of our desires, aren't they? We see something, we see what others have, 
and our eyes covered. They lust after those things that don't belong to us. They get greedy. They want. That is the bad eye. Now, I remember as a child, as a younger boy, a little boy, in fact, my parents told me this proverb because they noticed what I was doing at dinner. Uh, this proverb is also in English. They told me in Chinese. The proverb goes like this. Your eyes are bigger than your stomach. Have you heard that before? Your eyes are bigger than your stomach. It's, it shows that the eyes are lustful. They're greedy. So I would take more food than my stomach could fit, my little stomach. And so the bad eye is the greedy eye. Just as sexual immorality is described as the lust of the flesh, greed is described as the lust of the eyes. And this is what Jesus is condemning here. If your eyes are bad, you can't see clearly. If your eyes are bad, you're greedy. And so your body is in moral darkness. And that's why one of our church fathers, John Chrysostom, he described greed as an illness of the soul, the worst type of decay. Now, if you think about the things we own, the possessions, moth and rust might destroy them, thieves might steal them, but greed destroys us on the inside. Greed destroys our soul. And so Jesus says, if your eyes are bad, how great is that darkness in you? So what are your eyes like? This is a checkup, a medical checkup. What are your eyes love, uh, like? What do you love? Can you see clearly? Or do you have bad eyes? And so when you watch the TV ads, the advertisement, the billboards, do your eyes start to lust after those things? You see, the marketers, they're very intelligent, they're smart. They play with our eyes. They play with it. They know that our eyes are lustful. And so they prey on it. And so if you buy this shampoo, you'll get hair like mine. And then we go buy that shampoo. If you buy these shoes, all your worries of your life will be gone. And so we buy those shoes and find that if you're a girl, high heels, they hurt. Your worries are not gone. If you buy Microsoft, you're, you're told that it works. So they prey on our eyes. Yeah, it was meant to be funny, so I'm glad I got it. <laughs> now, what about when you see the, the tax lotto? What do you do there? Gambling. The casinos. Tax lotto, $4 million. I can win all that without working. How good is that? In this past week, I'm not sure if you watched the news, but James Packer got the go-ahead to open up a new casino in Sydney. And the government will get $1 billion, over $1 billion over 15 years. But who suffers with these new casinos? Who actually pays that money? It's actually the poor people. The poor suffers. And I've seen gambling, how much damage it can do to families. The poor suffers. You see, gambling is so destructive and it works because it preys on the eye. Look at this. You put in a buck, look how much you can win. But you'll just lose and lose and lose. Gambling works because it seduces the eyes. It's just coveting. Now what about when you see others? What they have, what they wear at school, at work, at church even. You know, someone there has the nicer clothes. Someone there has a flashy watch. Someone there has the newer phone. You look on the car park, you're driving a Kia or a Hyundai, 
And you see someone come with a BMW. You visit each other's home where you're trying to show hospitality. Someone has a massive house. What are your eyes doing? Are your eyes saying, thinking, I want that too? That person does not deserve that. That rich person does not deserve that. I want that too. And I resent that person and I'm, I feel disdain for that person. But the thing is, you see, greed, the greedy eye is never satisfied. Never gets satisfied at all. You see, when we envy those who are richer than us, they themselves envy those who are richer than them. There's always someone who's going to be richer. You know, even Bill Gates, the countries are richer than him. Some countries anyway. It's always someone richer. You see, greed is never satisfied. Rather, what greed does is actually it, it blinds the person. And that's why it's the bad eye. If you've got the bad eye, it blinds you from you seeing your own greed. It, it blinds you from, from seeing things clearly. It distorts your way of life. And greed sort of has this power to hide itself. It's got this power to hide it so that you don't see it. Now, greed blinds us from seeing here in Australia that where we are amongst the wealthiest in the world. Do you know that? We are amongst the wealthiest in this world. We actually have so much here. But greed blinds us to see how good we have it. Now, I remember talking to an international student and, and when he attended a Christian union and he saw these Australian Christians talking about heaven. He's thinking, why are these Australians talking about heaven? How good heaven will be? Australia is like heaven already. Australia is like heaven already compared to China. That's what this person told me. You see, we have it so good already, but greed blinds us from seeing our greed. We have it so well here. Greed blinds people, and that's why you don't have people who would tend to confess to being greedy. You know, minister, uh, people confess, you know, I've lied, I've hurt someone, I've committed adultery. People confess to those things, but people don't really confess to being greedy. Have you thought about that? People don't confess to being greedy because greed has the power to hide itself, hide you from seeing your greed, helps you overlook your greed, helps you justify your greed. Greed. And so I want us to think, if that's the power of greed, I want you to be thinking, could that be me? Am I actually the greedy person? Am I a greedy person? If you're there thinking, well, that's not me, that's the rich person next to me. Well, that's one of the symptoms of greed. It blinds itself, you don't see it. So greed blinds people, but it also binds people to more greed. It traps people into pursuing more wealth. It blinds and it binds. It's like the medical condition of dropsy. Have you heard of dropsy before? With this condition, you have this insatiable thirst for water, even though your body is already filled with fluids. But the more you try to satisfy your thirst, the more it's stimulated, the condition gets worse. That's how it is with greed. The more you're greedy, the more you get greedy, the more you want, and it never ends. And so in Ecclesiastes, the wise man said this once, whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. If that is your eye, then that's a bad eye. Greed is never satisfied, always comparing, always competing, 
never content, never satisfied. And Jesus says, how great is that darkness in you? And so that's the second assessment. How are your eyes? Can you see clearly? Well, after checking our hearts and our eyes, it actually becomes quite obvious now who your master is, or rather, whom you are enslaved to. You see, in the 1800s, that's, that was when slavery was abolished in America and in, in, the, in England. But you see, slavery is in fact alive and well today. Everyone is a slave to someone or something. The thing you live for, the thing you strive for, the thing you dream about, the thing that keeps you up at night, that is your master. That is what you're enslaved to. And for the bulk of Western society, materialistic consumer society, that master is money. Mammon, that's what Jesus calls it here. Now just think about that. See if that's true for our society. Where do people gather when it's holidays, when it's a public holidays? What do people do? They flock to the churches? No, they flock to the other cathedral, the temple, called the shopping centres. Chadston Shopping Centre, awe-inspiring building, and people go there to experience money, experience the power of money, what money can do there. You get pilgrims. Rather than going to churches, people flock to shopping centres from around the world. People go to experience what money can do, what money can buy, how money can satisfy me. People experience the power of money. Now, you know, you've probably heard this, how people also go on these shopping therapies, right? I want us Christians to think about shopping therapies. If I buy a few things, I'll heal my soul. I'll make myself feel better. Now, this is a a side thing, but I want want us Christians to really consider that deeply. If we're always off on shopping therapies, is that just a way for us to satisfy our greed, to actually just justify our greed? And you see, we've with all these things, we're often fooled into thinking that we are the master of our money. We are the master of our bank accounts. We are the master of all that we own. But instead, we get enslaved by it. That's the power of money. Power ha- money has, has enslaving power. And this English philosopher, Francis Bacon, he says this, "'If money is not thy servant, it will be thy master.'" The covetous man cannot properly be said to possess wealth as that may be said said to possess him. You see, none of us ever intend to be enslaved by money, but that's what happens. That's what happens. We live for it, we strive for it, we work for it. Now, what do you call someone who actually lives and serves and strives for money as their thing in this life? What do you call that? You know what the Bible calls that? Cause it an idol worshipper. Cause that person an idol worshipper. Rather than love God, trust God, serve God, this person has replaced the creator with the created and loves money, serves money, trusts in money. You see, living for money is actually nothing less than idolatry, being an idol worshipper. And so that's what Paul calls greed in so many of the passages in the letters. He calls greed idolatry that we would replace the creator by the things in our wallets. And so Paul says in this final verse, look at verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, 
or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So you see, it's impossible to serve God and money. That's impossible. It's impossible to love both God and money. That's not possible. It's, it's impossible to serve God on Sundays and to serve money on our weekdays. That's impossible. But the sad truth is, even in a church like this, particularly in this middle class area, there are secret idol worshippers, secret idolaters. It's that shocking, isn't it? It's shocking. Remember, greed blinds itself, blinds you from seeing your own greed. But if that is us, we might think it's trivial, greed is a minor thing, no one's getting hurt. It's often the forgotten sin. But Paul was always serious about that. Jesus himself was always serious about that. You love money, you serve money, you trust in money, you are an idol worshipper. So greed, it blinds us, it binds us, and it also enslaves us. So now we come to the end. What's your diagnosis? Your heart's been checked, your eyes been checked. Where is your heart? Is your heart misplaced? How about your eyes? Can you see clearly? Or is it darkened by greed? Now, if your heart is out of place, if your eyes cannot see clearly, and that's your diagnosis tonight, make this week the week where it changes, where your heart longs for the things of heaven, the treasures that will never fade, where your eyes see clearly and devote, devote yourself only to God, your eyes become generous and is cross-shaped in his generosity. And uh, 10 years I've been married, in, about 10 years ago when we were, actually over 10 years ago, when we were planning our wedding invites, we had a pretty big wedding. It's a Chinese wedding, and so you had those massive banquets. We had about 360 at our this massive reception place. And we knew um, that a lot of those people were non-Christians. Because a lot of them we actually didn't know. They were family, friends, um, family of families, and people we thought we were related to but weren't. People who were friends but were in fact related. So there were a whole bunch of people we just didn't know. And so when people get married, in, in our culture, there's quite, quite a circle. People know each other. They know what they're doing. People generally, with, with our culture, they make an assessment. That, that couple, that, that guy, he's, he's an engineer. That, that, that lady, that she's, uh, she works at a bank. They actually do well in life. They actually succeed. They'll make it in life because they're professionals. So, so in our culture, they make these type of assessments. Now, we knew that so many of them were non-Christians. And so what we did was, in our invite, we, we wanted to be different. We want to not be as the world sees, sees things. We wanted to be different. And so what we did was we printed at the top of our invitation a verse from Joshua. We had it translated in Chinese, so it was there right at the front of our wedding invitation. Now, they would have read that. I'm not sure how much they would have understood anyway. But we want to make this clear that we begin our marriage in a different way. So it's a verse from Joshua, chapter 24, verse 15. In the context, Joshua is telling the people of God, if you want to serve an idol, go ahead. If you want to serve God, then go serve God. And then Joshua said these words, 
which were the words we put out on our invitation. He said, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. We wanted people to know that as we begin our family life together, we are here to serve the Lord. Not to do what you think, that we will succeed in life because we're professionals. So today, where is your heart? How are your eyes? Who do you serve? If your heart's treasure, if the very things you desire, love and long for with all your might is Jesus Christ, in the most strange, profound, wonderful way, you belong to God as his own treasured possessions. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the clarity you give us in this life, that we should not be living for things that will be destroyed or stolen. Help us to seek first your kingdom. Help us to treasure things that will last, the things of heaven, and to treasure Christ himself. And as we do, help us to see that we become the treasured possessions of Christ. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.